This is Sacrilegious with your host, Gary Latterman. We are back again with another episode of Sacrilegious. I'm really happy to be here and to not be alone, like the earlier episodes when it's mostly me yammering on and doing a kind of monologue. But today, yeah, I have someone really uh, special uh, here with me to chat a bit and have a conversation. Uh, My guest today is Katie Lofton, and she is religious studies scholar extraordinaire. I think um, her way of studying religion and writing about it and talking about it is really has really made a big impact on many of us who study in the field, but I think also for a larger public. So we'll talk about some of the work that you've done. And and I believe you're also, uh, at the moment, you're Dean of Humanities um, at Yale. So uh, I know you're busy as well. But I have to be honest that when I really started taking this podcast seriously and was uh, set on on really trying to do it and realizing it can't just be me talking to myself, uh, but it, I really need to have guests. And I swear to God, you were the first person that came to mind when, um, you know, as I said, I was thinking about the podcast and I settled on this name, Sacrilegious. And, and, and I think that has a lot to do, again, with, with the, my admiration for the work that you do around religion, um, but also uh, the subversive quality of it, which I appreciate. And, and I wonder um, if you first welcome, uh, but I, I said, I guess I want to start with, do you see your work in, in that way? Do you see your work as, as subversive in, in, some, in some ways, not just within the field of, of religious studies, but in terms of larger public perceptions of religion? Wow. I, I was thinking in advance, Gary, about when we met, and it's notable, I'm not very good at developing inception points, which is notable as a scholar of religion because origins are so essential, but I, it's, it's associational with me, which I, I think is probably also true of myth, which is, is myth the origin or the story we want to tell about the origin? And one of the things I would observe is that I associate you very much with my own connection with religion dispatches in early days and pieces that I wrote that I felt so supported by and provoked around John McCain and George Carlin and all my meanders with uh, my critique of the patriarchy through kind of subliminal and nerdy means, maybe not so subliminal um, in those cases. But um, so I have a strong association with you being such a, as you have been such a uh, empowering voice to people in religion and American culture trying to use the tools of that trade towards cultural critique. So I think that's probably the word that matters the most to me, more than subversive, since I think it's probably comedic to any of our listeners for someone who's paid by Yale or Emory to imagine subversion as their base note, but critique to take the the power of our, the traditions of scholarship that rise together in the study of religion, but also the new horizon for it as it works alongside post-colonial studies and black studies and gender studies to really manifest a question about how forms of culture unfurl and why we receive certain kinds of embodiment as inspirational, leaderly, and other kinds as not so. So I, I, I find 
that for me, that is that, that question of religion and American culture, what would it be for it not to be a source of critique? I think it's then a problem. Got it. Uh, that makes sense. And I, uh, I, I, you know, I, I appreciate and value that, that take. I'm my, my, uh, uh, subversive nature, even at Emory, I think is, um, tied into the ways in which people are so, uh, fixed and have such, I think, narrow views of religion and what counts as religion. And we know what a force religion is and, uh, has been, um, and will be in the future, you know, in our, in our world. And, and we know how much people are invested in their understanding of religion and sort of um, maintaining certain conventions. But Yeah, I, I, could, I, mean, I was talking to a brilliant student here, Dusty Gavin, who's writing an inspired dissertation about dance troops at historically black colleges and the role they've played in the gestural economy of dance culture more broadly in popular music and hip hop. And something he observed is that everyone's stake is so strong in what religion has to be so that it does not bleed into their ground. And that's, I think, what attracts me so much, and I think you as well, to the, to the term and to pressing at its borders in our departmental lives as scholars in departments of religion, we have to reckon with and not merely as um, irritants against the intense legacies, the indentured legacies of colonialism in the organization of those units, which many people inherit unconsciously. You and I as chairs know consciously how much there are certain positions that give rise to the need for a scholarly area that is about reinstantiating a scriptural or a legacy tradition. And you know, many of those colleagues have been some of my most inspiring conversation partners. They are nonetheless present to ensure a canon persists and therefore a certain idea of what religion must look like. So I think a lot of what I guess both you and I have, have worked within, which is the, the geographic nationalism of our term, American, allows us a slightly more promiscuous relationship, as Americans often have anyway, towards the subject. And I have taken that as a great liberty. I also recognize that my colleagues who are working in rabbinics or medieval Indian philosophy arrive at the university for under different terms and with different questions. They also can be allies in this work, but um, they have a different notion of what, re what religion enters the kingdom, the terms of their entry. Sure. Sure. And a part of the project is to tear down all that, right? <laughs> or tear down at least to some degree, a lot of that, uh, the, the, the lingering and not so lingering strong presence of colonial mentalities and ways of trying to imagine the subject of our, of our field. Again, something that's so loaded and determinant. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, it is hard to work against um, a lot of those institutional ways of thinking and conceptualizing. Um, and so um, I see that as both, it's both, there's, there's an internal struggle in some ways. Again, and, you know, I wanted to ask what your colleagues think about you studying, for example, celebrity. Um, mm -hmm. But then there, it is the sort of also not just the internal, but the external dynamic of, what is religion in our society and in public consciousness and what is the role of scholars and really working our, you know, our beat, <laughs> what we do. Yeah. You know, it's, um, overturning, I would not say, I, I like genre constrictions. I'm interested in genre as a democratic form. 
a democratic conceit that as a person who did not come from you know the, the inheritances of learnedness that I witness a lot, especially at Yale, people travel through schools that you're just supposed to know the names of. And uh, I had the, the deep fortune of entering that kingdom as a, as a college student going to the University of Chicago and then witnessing anew that even that starting at age 18 at a highly privileged context, there's still so many layers of privilege that precede that. I always found in the experience of class incursion, the genre, whether it's a thank you note or a, a the way the articles are formatted in such stodgy ways, there was something to me that made accessible the idea of knowledge formation in a way that being born to a certain family or with a certain set of resources or a certain identity were not accessible. So even in the departments that we encounter, all of these topics that are enshrined complicatedly, A, I find a lot of the occupants of those positions are interested in reimagining their terms. Yes. But I also think it would be dangerous, you know, the, as we discuss this all the time now in my work with Stanley Mays, what would it be if we could just design in a blank slate some new future? I, I myself don't love that experimental utopia. I, I think it's much more interesting to ask, since I'm not convinced that in the wiping away we would not do some as much danger as we do by reiterating those traditions. So mm. since all of those re are reiterations of some memory, the problem is where do we make new space for territories that have not been so commemorated and enshrined in the university? And, and you know, and that, you know, the question of celebrity studies is what I take enormous delight in. Your work has obviously been very inspirational at this point. I, I note that it is the topic that is the uh, now in the face of having elected a reality TV show star as president and seeing you know how that was not merely in the case of Reagan, a preamble to then a submission to electoral life, but actually is the articulation so that the celebrity form becomes how political life is now articulated. And, and it's forms of rationality and irrationality and dislike as being such an essential tool of the celebrity, which I think in the campaign, the electoral politician struggles more with the problem of dislike, whereas the celebrity accepts dislike is going to empower me as much as it seems to. And the, uh, the easiest example of that in my interest is someone like the family Kardashian, where the dislike of the crowd is as important an ingredient to their practice and empowerment as stars, as is the also hordes who are hugely fans of theirs and buying their products. So I find that it's not as hard to talk about the critical valence of celebrity now. It is, I think, so the, the challenge is figuring out what its uh, genealogies are. What is the preamble? What is what is the material before we need to learn to understand contemporary celebrity? Is it Alexander the Great? Is it questions of deities? Those are the questions I, I myself contain a lot of interest in. But, you know, there's no doubt that sure. from the beginning of my career, as I think a lot of people experience who work in the realm of the popular, I get endless questions about what the merit of it is and uh, confusions about whether I can, that can be my real material. There must be some material behind that. But I take that as data for my purpose. It, it really it does not. It, it, every time I have one of those awkward conversations as a junior faculty or a senior faculty member or now as a person talking about my job, I just think that's interesting. Tell me why that does not seem reasonable to you. And that becomes nourishment for the object. Because again, yes. if I learned anything from celebrity, nothing is off the table for, I mean, looking at Billie Eilish, who's incredibly successful by finding ways to incorporate every reaction of her audience. And I learned from that as, as not necessarily the modality I easily occupy, but I think is something that academics 
for whom developing sieves is one of their major tools of exclusion. Right. Trying to open up my sieve seems like part of the practice of, of learning from the subjects I study. Love that. Opening up the sieve, I think, is is right on and, and um, something that is worth writing about if you haven't. <laughs> I think just methodologically what that means uh, in this field, um, again, especially around religion, when it has been so constricted and difficult to sort of uh, really break through and break out of those uh, inherited conventional forms. But I mean, everything you say about about celebrity reminds me of religion, because isn't that the history of religions, too, is like feeding off of dislike, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, as, mm-hmm. as a, an mm-hmm. element in, in you know, the, the dynamic and just all, all, of, all of what we see around celebrity echoes, resonates with, you know, other kinds, as you say, of historical forms that have, have religion written all over them in the sense, but has become so now uh, ingrained in culture. I mean, when I start bringing up the topic uh, or if someone asks me about it, you know, they, they get it. And it does challenge their, you know, traditional way of thinking about religion and what counts as religion. And that's, that's when, I mean, I just, I think that's fantastic. I'm working now on an article with a student here, Alexander Roca Alvarez. Uh, the article is called The Basic Celebrity. And it's our attempt to think about how so much of celebrity studies focuses on the eccentric, the wildcat. My, my very respected colleague, Sharon Marcus, just wrote a great book on celebrity, but it does fall, fall into this where it focuses on the celebrity as strange, as unlike culture. But what interests Alex and I is the success of these milquetoast celebrities, you know, which in my generational idiom would be someone like Jennifer Aniston or Reese Witherspoon, which I, and, and figuring out this new nomenclature of basic to think about how does that ever manifest the same religious valence as the eccentric, extreme, you know, uh, incomparable celebrity. So the comparison here would be Beyonce has a beehive. Reese Witherspoon does not have a beehive. She does not. She has, she has a following, and she has become a significant market force as a tastemaker, but is not instrumentalizing a community to rethink its own identity through her iconicity. And so that's one of the things I am trying to work out, that even within celebrity, I think we have hierarchies of um, religious power. So BTS, the, the K-pop band, has an army that I think is well worth the students of, uh, of religious studies to tackle. I don't think we could say that NSYNC did, a band that also dates me. But uh, that is to say that, that, that there's not many boy bands in the U.S. that I think reflect that kind of social power. And what's the differences there? What do those groups do to make that difference manifest in their celebrity power? I'm very interested in that. Sure. And I again, the the notion of the gradients is important. So it's not just some blanket statement. Oh, you know, all celebrity is religion or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, we really are looking for certain markers that are kind of nuanced, but aren't uh, ubiquitous around around celebrity and fame in our in our society. And and so yeah, I think there too, it's a a very uh, eye opening uh, topic to start talking about these fandoms and sub communities that get built and and that aren't just built organically but the 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 celebrity is also the producer and the kind of instigator is participating in in a lot of this kind of collective uh, uh reverence and collective formations around around again status and um a person standing in in our big kind of celebrity world of culture you mentioned the BTS and you wrote about them and was there a wasn't there a story about the reaction that you had to mm. writing about them? Can 
Can you yeah. say a little about that? Because, uh, you know, this isn't all just fun and games, uh, no. I think, and in, 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 in trying to uh, think in different terms about religion. Yeah, you know, I, as a scholar of popular culture, I'm often, um, and who teaches a lot of classes in that vein, I'm often tracking new manifestations of pop power. And BTS had gotten on my scene just because of their stratospheric rise on the charts. But then I really started studying them with greater diligence when they were able to upset an Oklahoma rally by Trump, by buying, I think they're already uh, mobilized and purchased all the tickets such that it looked to the Trump organizers like the tickets had sold out. In fact, there were very few people present at the rally. And so that kind of political incursion interested me. And so I, I had given some thought to them. And then I was reached a, a, a reporter for Variety, which is a, a pretty big celebrity a kind of economics of entertainment magazine reached out to me oh, sure. and, and had written a, a very thoughtful email about you know, her own background and her interests. And so we had a conversation. In that conversation, I had remarked that there was something rather religious about their capacity to transfigure the relationships between the members of BTS into something that their fandom wanted to be a part of. And when the article posted, ARMY, obviously, you know, maybe it's not obvious to everyone, but if you're a fan of BTS and you're a member of ARMY, you are going to consume every new piece of media about them. And do very significant close readings. And my sense was from my email inbox that there was a pretty widespread social media discussion <laughs> because I received and have as of, as of now received you know, 320 emails with a lot of strong, strongly voiced opinions, taking the, the quotation that I had and taking it at, that I was accusing of ARMY as being a cult. Right. And so it's a classic you know, thing that happens in the study world. We're familiar with it. I think what was notable to me is in their messages, they, they, there's, there's half sermon, half anger. So the sermon was, you must be sad if you can't love BTS. And let me help you love BTS. Here's some link. You need love. Your problem is you don't have love in your life. And then the other half were, how dare you, imperial white professor, speak about something you don't love. And so the thing that overlaps there to me is the question of love. And I, I, I found that both stirring disrupting, familiar, um, that same circle round that is not the first time that's happened to me in my movements in popular culture. But I felt both schooled by it and then you know, reiterated in my own relationship to material. What, what I felt schooled by was when I began my career, I really, I would say I was an inheritor of a certain school of religious studies that believes in the near violent difference between the scholar and the subject. Right. And I would say at this point in my career, I see that as a violence that is dangerous. Um, I also think that there is a reason to argue for what expertise does, uh, that is to think and think about something in comparison to other things. But I, I learn anew that I, I, did, I do not love BTS. That should not keep me from, meaning I don't listen to their music and feel joy. It is not a sound that sates my particular practices of musicological self-curation. But that shouldn't keep me from writing about BTS. It should simply have made me more mindful that every sentence I was going to utter could be read in its base note for being an anti-fandom. And I think I was more naive in that interview than I will be in the future about how this is a pedagogical opportunity. <laughs> and I need to also represent my not love because there's no doubt that's the thing they were most upset about. And they all, even from quotations that I think are relatively neutral, they perceived in this great, delicious 
Deridian way, the base note of, I don't think she loves them and she needs that love. Also, how dare you speak when you do that love? And obviously there's a long tradition of religious studies, debates about this very question. I just felt you know, reconvicted that it's so important to talk about these materials and that I need to develop as much personal consciousness as possible about how my taste preferences are going to influence how I handle the subject. Mm, yeah. Quite interesting for folks who study popular culture, I think. Um, and, yeah. And thinking I mean, you about so the, the public I, engagement. I've been working on Bob Dylan for a long time as a subject, and I've actually now set him down. I've written several articles on him. I feel I, I, I feel I've, I've closed the door. I'm not writing a book about him because despite having profound connection to certain lyrical moments or to certain tracks that I do think are worthy of his entrance into the Norton anthology, maybe not the receipt of the Nobel Prize, I don't love him. I, I, I don't have, and when I say I love him, I don't love what he creates and manifests in the world. And I'm not sure at this point in my career, my capacities, what is it to shine light on something that you think ultimately creates as much harm as it does joy? And I think I, I want to figure out how to continue the work of critique in spaces where I can do a little bit more standing by the subject. And Interesting, um, yeah. That's, that's an unfolding feature of my own practices, I'd say. Got it. Yeah. I mean, are you saying you, you need to love your subjects more? I would say it's uh, not the subject, I would say, as much as the, the, the universe they manifest. So yeah. Dylan is, I think, a really great example. And it came to me as I, I just finished an article that's coming out from the Journal of Popular Music Studies about, you know, his, his, his electric, his move to, to go electric, as it were. And... One of the things, uh, and I wrote another piece that's in American Religion about his use of gospel musicians and his conversion. And in both of studying closely those episodes, it was very hard to avoid that whatever fandom he produced, he does so on the back of black sound that is unacknowledged in his manifestation. And there's a value to a scholar unearthing and thinking through what it is for white men in rock and roll to continually find their inspiration, their electrification in and through black sound. But here I have just been, you know, such a witness and learner to my colleague, Daphne Brooks, who has a new book out that is spectacular called Liar Notes for the Revolution, the, Intele the Intellectual Life of Black Feminist Sound, that really argues forward, we've got to stop doing this, supporting white artists who are not participating in conscientious archival work. So she ends up you know, she celebrates Jack White, but Jack White is an archival thinker. There's a white guitarist who's with the white stripes for those who are not fans, but does archival thinking and tries to think through what are the sources of my power. And so it's, I, I think the love is, is, is maybe too shorthand of the word. It's does the subject give a route to a better interpretation? And I think the verdict for me on Dylan in the end is that mm -hmm. a close reading of him only reiterates his own gorgeous narcissism, which helped me understand so many men I've loved <laughs> in my life. But I've got to move past that, Gary, right. into a new Listen, <laughs> I hate to ask who those might be. <laughs> We're but, not going to name names on this podcast. Uh, right. No, not, maybe another I'm, podcast. Uh, yeah. That's <laughs> sacrilegious, man. I got you know? a lot to say on that topic. But <laughs> we won't. Maybe when you're no longer in position uh, there. But no, I mean, I mean, I, I get you, and that's pretty profound to kind of have that realization as a scholar in terms of what, where do you put your energies, and 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 for what, but what what purpose, and um, yeah, to to complexify love in terms of how we're committed to scholarship. 
you know, in writing in some ways. And so I, I, I get that. And it makes a lot of sense. Although, you know, it kind of worries me as I continue my foray into my new book, which is on religion and drugs, mm. uh, which, uh, you know, is um, a super topic that I love. But I think that's a great topic because, you know, the drug as a tool, as, as you've taught me and talked about, it is, it of course, can be complicit in some of the worst modern economies of violence and inequity. It also has been throughout history a route to revisioning the world. So it has that dialectic that I think we want. It's just like religion. Yes, yes, yes. And I want a subject that does that double-sided. That yes. Has, that I need that double-sidedness. And you can see I've kind of argued Bob out of the possibility of being told the good anymore. I might be singing quietly to myself, don't think twice, it's all right, whatever I've been doing particular acts. <laughs> well. But it doesn't, that doesn't, I think, lift me up. And I want to find a topic that does both, that I can mount a critique, but then see my way forward with it. Because otherwise, it can feel like you're just reproducing that very sucking colonial violence. If I take my critique and I leave you behind, I take my critique and I leave you behind. Yes. How can this object continue to be something we are in, in a relation with a mutuality and respect? Yes. And so, again, I think maybe the word isn't, isn't love, it's respect. I guess that's where I end up as I talk with you today. Interesting. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, that there too, I hear it. The, the respect makes sense. And there was just an article in Jezebel about Beyonce taking over the Bob Dylan or, you know, kind of critiquing as a kind of intervention in that yes. adoration. I, and I, it may be your friend. That has it the was author. my dad. Yeah, exactly. okay, right, yes. yeah, no, I mean, it's, I mean, I was just, yes. I was just reading that. So. Yes. Yeah, yeah, very powerful. And it's, it, those are fighting words. I mean, these are fighting words, okay. but we're in fighting times. And, uh, and I'm excited about that, that the question of, we, you know, the canon wars continue and they are real. And I like canon wars. I don't think we should put them down. The question of does this text still stand? And I think the text still stands if it can give a reply to critique. And if it can't, then you can't keep handling it. But I, you know, I think right now Beyonce is is, is I think making a very strong bid to enter the candidate. I'm certainly on the fine, uh, on the side of her entry. Right. And you you mentioned can reply to a critique. Is that what you said? Yes. Yes. That the work can give you a way to think about both the reasons, and that's why I think Lemonade was such a breakthrough for Beyonce. Because you could say before before Lemonade, I think the work was, I would argue, a little less dialectical, and Daphne's last chapter of Fire Notes does this in much more explicit form than I'm going to be talking about. But that when you get to Lemonade, you could see both the woman who was the object of desire that manifested a certain form of heteronormativity, and the woman who rebels against that form and mm. tries to think through it. Right. So, you know, this, the music before that, we see a lot of empowerment and you could you know, praise Halo or single ladies for their lyrical catchiness and perhaps witness the truth, but they certainly were on one side of the romantic self-valorization equation. But once we get to eliminate, we see this downside of both that romance and that self-valorization. And unsurprisingly, she finds root material in longer traditions of sound in the United States and digging into other soundscapes and archival spaces to think about that. Got, yeah, got it. I mean, that um, that's that's pretty clear. And, and that double-sidedness, too, when you have a topic that can kind of bring in this sort of, I mean, again, especially when we're trying to talk about religion, however we might uh, perceive it, to, to, to capture that. And, um, I, you know, I, I'm, I see that, certainly, um, in thinking about Beyonce versus... Versus Bob Dylan. Are you working? So you're working on another project, pop culture? You say that's that's tied to pop you culture. You know, I, I've become at this point very 
I, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this. I, I, I have become a person who I think either for practical reasons, but there might be also a more intellectual commitment. I'm not sure. I can't, I like thinking at the concentrated form of an article. And I have for some time, I had the fortune, the complicated fortune of being a student of Jonathan Smith at Chicago, who was renowned as an essayist. And, uh, and I think obviously made enormous inroads in the study of religion through that work. And many of the subfields of the study of religion are more article fields than they are book fields. Our field that is the conjoined space we had in this thing known as American religious history or religion in the United States, or however we want to figure that complicated nationalist agenda is a book field. I, I found, I've always found the idea of a book pretty hard. So I find the horizon of an article. And then I, after doing those kind of mount up some idea, of what's the pattern of my problem that I'm solving? So at any given time, there's always four or five things that are in, in process. And the ones that relate most presently to popular culture, as I just finished a piece that took many years thinking about religion and documentary film. And nice. uh, that was a real struggle because it began with a lot of anger, just frustration at my own sense that there were not really good documentaries on religion and why I was so strongly convicted about that and how I then went on a hunt for good ones. And then I'm working can, on can you mention Can you mention a couple of those? Just, sure, yeah. So the, the ones I, I spotlight is I think are really, to me, of interest. I look at the after kind of doing my own ranting about what's bad, um, and this piece is coming out in the Journal of Cinema and Media Studies, is Salesmen by the Maisley Brothers, which is about Catholic Bible salesmen. Uh, Holy Ghost People, which is a classic piece about Pentecostals in West Virginia. And uh, A Time for Burning, which is an amazing piece by Bill Jersey about uh, white and black congregations facing off and thinking about issues of segregation. So each of those films is flawed. They're, they're imperfect films, but they really get at, um, and I think this is partially what Cinema Verite was working for, um, an attempt to think about the relationship between people and the relationship between the filmmaker and the subject studied. So if one of the major problems of documentaries on religion is they seem to reify the negative stereotypes for religion in the secular, hypersexualized, uh, brainwashed, um, or only a tool for romantic, political, progressive good. Uh, these three films, and I would say Cinema Verite in general, was trying to figure out how do human beings reason out their everydayness, and how is this word religion another mechanism to think about relationality? And uh, and I found so it, it, that for me was a very a very positive thing to to think through since it began with outrage and right. And then what I did what I was interested in is these filmmakers' own biographies and their archives, which revealed how much they were writing in the idiom of the secular, struggling what they thought saw themselves as all three as passionate secularists correcting for sectarian ideas. And of course, that's always a territory where you and I are going to get interested. So they have kind of the negative attributes of the secular trying to control and delimit the religious. They have the positive of being interested in how within religion, secular possibility, possibilities of freedom are possibly attained. And so, um, so anyway, the, but then the other thing I'm, I'm working on right now with a student here, uh, Rita Cole, on Kanye and his uh, Sunday services and trying to ask the question when, you know, using the great work of Sian Yai on, um, on, on the gimmick and capitalism, when is a new religion, when is something a new religion and when is it a gimmick and how can you tell the distinction? And, and so for people who are, people who are, you know, Kanye fans, it's, you know, it's very clear what I'm talking about, which is that he's kind of moved more into the religious space in the last three years, although he has a long religious prehistory, but he certainly has been invested in trying to build up 
this gospel choir he's assembled as a religious service. And so what, what does that mean? How do we interpret that space? Right. Because for many, it's sacrilegious. Well, you can and for find many, that online, I mean, <laughs> there are some who are going to say it's a gimmick or some kind yeah. of, you know, it's it's not sincere. I mean, we know that line throughout our, you know, his, American religious history. And so um, I know there's a lot of attention now on on this development. And I'm, I'm kind of curious what you're thinking or finding there or not to give anything away, but... Well, we're working on, but one of the things I love about Cien's work is she really gives a compassionate, like Lauren Berlant, or a compassionate rendering of why features of capitalism become necessary because of its absolute violence, so that the gimmick becomes in some ways a hack. You can't seem to get it. How could it be that who gets to start a church? Who has moral authority? And mm, is, you know, right. So here is... Is, is the gimmick always a inauthentication or is it an attempt to jump forward, step through the board game, seven steps? And how can we understand that as a not unreasonable venture? And why is that any different than Lorenzo Dow getting on his horse in the 1830s and, you know, trolling across Kentucky for listeners? There are reasons that Nathan Hatch would not, that is the, the greatest turn of American Christianity, might not recognize Kanye. Uh, but some of those reasons are pretty disturbing and some of them are interesting. So uh, I want to I figure out why, especially, and here I've been so informed by uh, my colleague Judith Weisenfeld's brilliant work on uh, psychiatric diagnosis in the late 19th century of Black subjects, almost always because of claims of excessive religiosity. And so right. thinking about how the simultaneity of a public celebrity diagnosis of Kanye as mentally ill alongside this emergence of a religious identity, I, I, I want to think about that and think it through. And I, I like it because he is an especially problematic subject Certainly. who raises in his own lyrical place, I think, a lot of dialectic about that problem. As any fan of, of, of Kanye can sing with the, the podcast right now, his most famous song, Runaway, is entirely about what a terrible person he is and how he thinks forward from that terror. And that's long before he put on that MAGA hat, so... Yeah, I mean, those are just the, I think just hitting all all of the all of the 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 right notes, you know, in thinking about religion and celebrity, and then and the other uh, theme that I find fascinating and and incorporate in in most of my teaching, and that's music, you know, and and that both right now what's happening with Kanye, but historically is very uh, uh, much a, a powerful thread in and and thinking about religion in America music as as crucial to uh, popularity to fandom to impact and 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 as a kind of social spiritual uh, lubricant in its way yeah this is such an exciting time i think for music studies for sound studies uh, i think it's not surprisingly because of the ascendancy of black studies and the humanities there's a, a wonderful doctoral student here amber drumpool who's writing what will be a truly field-changing dissertation that is trying to get at the category of the sanctified, which is, you know, as a pop music fan, is often tossed around as a way to shorthand Black artists' preamble to their R&B public lives. But as Amber is doing through really scrupulous archival labor, thinking about those emergent Pentecostal-based artists, majority female, who were rooted in a tradition known as, by white folks looking at it, more complicated within Black folks, sanctified, and what are the sonic landscapes of that? What kind of sonic education is taking place? And how those were sites equal to a conservatory in their musicological education they were providing 
the black women who were inside of them building up their choirs and doing all the different modalities of touring sound that they did. So I, I, when I, and I would listen to Amber, I'm also struck by all of the materials that are coming out right now. Braxton Shelley's great thinker on, on gospel music, the musicology right now. It's a rich moment to ask, what is the sound of religion? Obviously, we have colleagues who have been thinking about that for some time. And I've been so moved and inspired by Amy DeRogatis and Isaac Weiner's project on religion and American sound and Isaac's own work, which has been so invested in that question from the beginning. So I, I see this as a moment of exciting germination in that sensory space. Absolutely. Um, music and, and a lot of these would have been kind of traditionally seen as left field topics. I mean, not just in music. Now I'm thinking just in terms of the study of religion, how, how much that ch has changed and the kind of topics that we're seeing that are, that are really um, turning the field upside down. Thanks to, uh, I think you rightly point out, you know, African-American studies, the Latinx kind of scholarship that's coming out where, uh, you know, again, the category religion doesn't quite do it, or we have to rethink how we might apply uh, that word. And um, and so, the, uh, to me, it's as I, I agree with you, it's an exciting time, and it'll be an exciting future for for religious studies, just keeping within that sphere. I, I want to also ask, just uh, what is it, my you know predictable question, just in terms of a pandemic and the world we're in at the moment, and just uh, you know, it's a question I've been getting, but be curious to hear your thoughts, comments, just uh, off the top of your head about religion in the pandemic. Is the pandemic going to have some kind of major impact on religious life, or, or do you have a sense of that? Again, I, we're in the middle of it, and I, I find it difficult to you know, try to step back and make predictions or feel like I can generalize about this. But, but certainly in this um, incredible time of mass death and the politics of the pandemic and, and, and not just COVID, but the, the pandemic of, of, of racism, um, that is also a part of this moment. Uh, I just, um, I, I'm, I'm torn between, you know, on the one hand, we hear, well, people are going back to religion and their traditional religion. But I'm also thinking, man, this is going to maybe continue with the sort of breakdown of uh, traditional forms of religion and continue with this um, the major demographic trend of, of spiritual but not religious and, and the nuns and so on. Just curious if what you're thinking. It's such a, um, it's a deep question that we won't, answer right away but the two things that stick out to me right now are uh the pretty distinguished tradition especially in biblical studies of thinking about the role of trauma and the formation of religious communities and one definition of religion being the communal commemoration of past loss and ritualization of past loss and i think what we can't yet see is, and I, I think we, we don't even know how written on all of our bodies in different ways has been the, the layers of loss unprocessed, unprocessed because of our complicated dislocation from each other, but also unprocessed because it's too enormous to scale. If I creep through one death, I, I'll be, I am in that puddle. I can't climb out of it. If I clean, if I look at a ticker on newyorktimes.com, my body goes kind of blank and dead inside. So some scale between that, the names of those 
I individually have lost, and then the scale, and then that scale, and this is the second point, put alongside two conjoined melodrama, that of climate change and the meteorological upsets of this epoch, and the claims and arguments for racial restitution coupled with the reiterations of Christian nationalism in the United States. So it seems to me it's not coincidental that in this epoch of sequestering in place, we bubble over with our bleakest forms of hate and mm. uh, kind of solidarity of hope uh, of what it would mean to act together, knowing that when we're separated, we are that is a political act that tries to diffuse our capacity to scream out. So. I think on all those fronts, whether you're looking at the incredibly, you know, as my colleague Ebony Terman has written about so well, the womanist roots of Black Lives Matter, uh, as Lisa Sedaris is tracking, uh, the critical role of religious ethics and biofuturism in thinking about climate change. But as we both experienced, you know, just the imperative of trying to, as we talk about American Christianity, understanding it as this double-headed hydra mm. that ultimately creates the very uh, object, America, that it must necessarily be triumphantly white over. And our colleagues, Megan Goodwin and Kelly Baker and Anthea Butler, among many others, have written so thoughtfully about that for many years. And so it seems to me that this is certainly a time that, that alights the religious imagination. I, I became last spring pretty obsessed with the failure to manage the physical bodies of the dead and dying um, in in this moment and the sense that our incapacity to make graveside memorials for those who are being mass buried in New York seemed like to me a pretty critical commentary on our dissolution, our ritual dissolution of society. I, I admit that to me, the realization of uh, protest in June in the wake of George Floyd's murder show that the death is never forgotten. It will come back. It will come back and we will speak together. Um, and I, I, I admit, I feel quite now elated that there is a, a more interesting democratic future than the last 30 years because of this trauma, or that is right now the, the, the place I sit. Mm, yeah, powerful. I think right on, I, on, all, on all fronts. And hard to really know what is ahead, but um, we can feel deep within our existential selves that, you know, this is, um, this is, uh, going to be hard to, to figure out and to learn how to uh, live with in ways that don't bring us down or continue to encourage the dissolutions of, uh, our society, but that, uh, can maybe bring us together and be more inspiring, uh, more inspiring kinds of, um, community, uh, action and coherence. And, um, as you can get, I mean, I'm, as you know, I mean, I think this sort of, uh, the mass death just, and, and then the, what we're, you know, we're seeing with the dead, but also sort of really confronting mortality in some uh, pretty extreme ways could be a moment, you know, it just feels like it could be a moment where we have that realization, uh, of finitude and, uh, something we all share and that maybe we can learn to talk about that in public ways that, that I think can be enriching for us. So it's, it is um, a time of despair, but also uh, as we hopefully are coming out of it, some, some hope as well. So that 
is important, I think, to, to kind of keep that in mind. I suppose my last question I'll finish up is related in some ways, and it, it brings us back more to what you were saying about expertise and the public and, you know, all of this complexity around the, you know, religion. Are you, are you a, a fan of, of religious, uh, the notion of religious literacy, the notion that somehow experts within the field can translate all of this in, in ways that can go beyond just reinforcing, you know, what some listeners might already believe, but really changing people's attitudes. I feel, if I can quick, I feel I can, I hope I'm not overstating this, but I feel I can do that in the classroom. I know I can do that with students where they're coming out with a completely different uh, way of, of seeing religion. Um, but I, as I, I've, as, as you know, as I know, the classroom is not the public in some sense. And I often think about that in terms of, of the efforts around religious literacy. Yeah, it's interesting that um, the the various tumult it creates, certain subjects don't have the option whether or not to teach people the basics about who they are because the inquiries they get keep forcing them into a posture of exhibition and accounting. I, I think what, what it, it seems just necessary to say that, that the discomfiture between the academy and public knowledge is, of course, in one sense, about protecting a particular kind of product and its elitism. It's also true that there are certain answers that are just not well put in 140 characters. I think both can coexist in the university and I think the university absolutely is a site, an important site for training and thinking through what does summary dispatch do? How can we do it better? How can we speak in simpler ways about the most complicated things? But it's also true we have to be a place where there are some things. I was visiting my colleague, Scott Miller's lab, though he's a chemist at Yale, and, and I was asking him, can you explain that to me in layman's terms? And he did a really good job for like five minutes. He's like, after this moment, it's going to get beyond you, Katie. And he's like, but I promise <laughs> right. you it's happening. It's <laughs> that's, that's and good. I think, you know, the academy is a place for the first five minutes of that dialogue. How, do, how does Scott learn how to speak so true, like thoughtfully to me? So I understand he can speak about what he does. And then the next 20 minutes, which is where he's at the edge of thinking about some of the most important questions in physical chemistry today. I, I, I'm so inspired right now by what the Luce Foundation, under the direction of Jonathan Van Antwerpen, is doing to try to license a wide number of communities, University of Alabama, Indiana, um, Northeastern, with Liz Bukhar and, and Megan Goodwin, where I think are doing such important things with sacred rights. I think that the question of trying to, what's the responsible bridge work when the hardest things we think about leave us briefly wordless. And then if anyone's written a dissertation chapter, no, suddenly you have 120 pages of words. And then you have to find a way to say a thousand words of that. That cycle round is an honor to think through. It is incredibly hard. Universities are spaces, parentheses, where people get the right to think through the routes of those genre transformations. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Really uh, nicely put. And uh, a nice uh, way to uh, maybe end this conversation and trying to, um, as I sit here, start a podcast and, and see where it goes. But as also someone who has really tried to engage the public in, in ways that um, I hope are both provocative and informative. But 
It's been provocative and informative being with you, Katie. I just love uh, talking with you, and I learn so much when um, I get this opportunity. So at that level, thank you so much just for being with me, but also, uh, as I said, thanks for being a guest here. On thank Sacramento. you, Gary. You got it. That's all for now. Take care. See you.